Hello and welcome back to another Winter's Tale from Hallowed Histories. And this time it's a real treat. It's the actor Rod McLaughlin reading R.H. Molden's Between Sunset and Moonrise. Rod McLaughlin is an actor, writer and theatre maker. And you can find more about him and his work at robmclaughlin.com. And R.H. Molden was a contemporary of M.R. James with many links to uh, East Anglia. And as you can tell by this story, he was almost equal as the master himself. And please take the time to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on wherever you can find the podcasts. And write to us at hallowed-histories.org. And stay tuned for another Winter's Tale coming up soon. Thank you. Between Sunset and Moonrise by R. H. Molden, read by Robin McLaughlin. During the early part of last year, it fell to me to act as executor for an old friend. We had not seen much of each other of late, as he had been living in the west of England, and my own time had been fully occupied elsewhere. The time of our intimacy had been when he was a vicar of a large parish not very far from Cambridge. I will call it Yaxholm though that is not its name. The place had seemed to suit him thoroughly. He had been on the best of terms with his parishioners and with the few gentry of the neighbourhood. The church demanded a custodian of antiquarian knowledge and artistic perception, and in these respects, too, my friend was particularly well qualified for his position. But a sudden nervous breakdown had compelled him to resign. The cause of it had always been a mystery to his friends, for he was barely middle-aged when it took place, and had been a man of robust health. His parish was neither particularly laborious nor harassing, and, as far as was known, he had no special private anxieties of any kind. But the collapse came with startling suddenness, and was so severe that, for a time, his reason seemed to be in danger. Two years of rest and travel enabled him to lead a normal life again, but he was never the man he had been. He had had a distinguished career at the university and had kept up his intellectual interests in later life, but, except for an occasional success to steam in a learned periodical, he had published nothing. I was not without hope of finding something completed among his papers which would secure for him a permanent place in the world of learning, but in this I was disappointed. His literary remains were copious and a striking testimony to the vigour and range of his intellect but they were very fragmentary. There was nothing which could have been made fit for publication except for one document, which I should have preferred to suppress. But he had left particular instructions in his will that it was to be published when he had been dead for a year. Accordingly, I subjoin it exactly as it left his hand, 
It was dated two years after he had left Yaxholm, and nearly five before his death. For reasons which will be apparent to the reader, I make no comment of any kind upon it. The solicitude which my friends have displayed during my illness has placed me under obligations which I cannot hope to repay, but I feel that I owe it to them to explain the real cause of my breakdown. I have never spoken of it to anyone, for, had I done so, it would have been impossible to avoid questions which I should not wish to be able to answer. Though I have only just reached middle age, I am sure that I have not many more years to live, and I am therefore confident that most of my friends will survive me and be able to hear my explanation after my death. Nothing but a lively sense of what I owe to them could have enabled me to undergo the pain of recalling the experience which I am now about to set down. Yaxholm lies, as they will remember, upon the extreme edge of the Fen district. In shape it is a long oval, with a main line of railway cutting one end. The church and vicarage were close to the station, and round them lay a village containing nearly five-sixths of the entire population of the parish. On the other side of the line, the fen proper began, and stretched for many miles. Though it is now fertile cornland, much of it had been permanently under water within living memory, and would soon revert to its original condition if it were not for the pumping stations. In spite of these, it is not unusual to see several hundred acres flooded in winter. My own parish ran for nearly six miles, and I had therefore several scattered farms and cottages so far from the village that a visit to one of them took up the whole of a long afternoon. Most of them were not on any road, and could only be reached by means of droves. For the benefit of those not acquainted with the fen, I may explain that a drove is a very imperfect sketch of the idea of a road. It is bounded by hedges or dikes, so that the traveller cannot actually lose his way, but it offers no further assistance in his progress. The middle is simply a grass track, and as cattle have to be driven along it, the mud is sometimes literally knee-deep in winter. In summer, the light peaty soil rises in clouds of sable dust. In fact, I seldom went down one without recalling Hesiod's unpatriotic description of his native village in Bessetia, bad in winter, intolerable in summer, good at no time. At the far end of one of these lay a straggling group of half a dozen cottages, of which the most remote was inhabited by an old woman who I will call Mrs Vries. In some ways she was the most interesting of my parishioners, and she was certainly the most perplexing. She was not a native, but had come to live there some twenty years before, and it was hard to see what had tempted a stranger to so unattractive a spot. It was the last house in the parish. Her nearest neighbour was a quarter of a mile away, and she was fully three miles from a hard road or a shop. The house itself was not a good one. It had been unoccupied, I was told, for some years before she came to it, and she found it in a semi-ruinous condition. Yet she had not been driven to seek a very cheap dwelling by poverty, as she had a good supply of furniture of very good quality, and apparently as much money as she required. She never gave the slightest hint as to where she had come from, or what her previous history had been. As far as was known, she never wrote or received any letters. She must have been between fifty and sixty when she came. Her appearance was striking, as she was tall and thin, with an aquiline nose and a pair of very brilliant dark eyes, and a quantity of hair, snow-white by the time I knew her. At one time she must have been handsome, 
but she had grown rather forbidding, and I used to think that a couple of centuries before, she might have had some difficulty in proving that she was not a witch. Though her neighbours, not unnaturally, fought rather shy of her, her conversation showed that she was a clever woman who had at some time received a good deal of education and had lived in cultivated surroundings. I used to think she must have been an upper servant, most probably lady's maid, in a good house, and despite the ring on her finger, suspected that the missus was brevet rank. On New Year's Eve, I thought it my duty to visit her. I had not seen her for some months, and a few days of frost had made the drove more passable than it had been for several weeks. But, in spite of her interesting personality, I always found that it required a considerable moral effort to call it her cottage. She was always civil and expressed herself pleased to see me, but I could never get rid of the idea that she regarded civility to me in the light of an insurance which might be claimed elsewhere. I always told myself that such thoughts were unfounded and unworthy, but I could never repress them altogether, and whenever I left her cottage it was with a strong feeling that I had no desire to see her again. I used, however, to say to myself that it was really due to personal pique, because I could never discover that she had any religion, nor could I instill any into her, and that the fault was therefore more mine than hers. On this particular afternoon, the prospect of seeing her seemed more than usually distasteful, and my disinclination increased curiously as I made my way along the drove. So strong did it become that if any reasonable excuse for turning back had presented itself, I am afraid I should have seized it. However, none did. So, I held on, comforting myself with the thought that I should begin the new year with a comfortable sense of having discharged the most unpleasant of my regular duties in a conscientious fashion. When I reached the cottage, I was a little surprised at having to knock three times, and by hearing the sound of bolts cautiously drawn back. Presently, the door opened, and Mrs. Freeze peered out. As soon as she saw who it was, she made me very welcome, as usual. But it was impossible not to feel that she had been more or less expecting some other visitor whom she was not anxious to see. However, she volunteered no statement, and I thought it better to pretend to have noticed nothing unusual. On a table in the middle of the room lay a large book in which she had obviously been reading. I was surprised to see it was a Bible, and that it lay open to the book of Tobit. Seeing that I had noticed it, Mrs. Vries told me, with a little hesitation, I thought, that she had been reading the story of Sarah and the fiend Asmodeus. Then, the ice once broken, she plied me almost fiercely with questions. To what cause did I attribute Sarah's obsession in the first instance? Did the efficacy of Tobias's remedy depend upon the fact that it had been prescribed by an angel? And much more to the same effect. Naturally, my answers were rather vague, and her good manners could not conceal her disappointment. She sat silent for a minute or two while I looked at her, not, I must confess, without some alarm, for her manner had been very strange, and then said abruptly, Well, will you have a cup of tea with me? I assented gladly, for it was nearly half past four, and it would take me nearly an hour and a half to get home. She took some time over the preparations, and during the meal talked with more fluency than usual. I could not help thinking that she was trying to make it last as long as possible. Finally, at about half past five, 
I got up and said that I must go, as I had a good many odds and ends awaiting me at home. I held out my hand, and as she took it, said, You must let me wish you a very happy new year. She stared at me for a moment, and then broke into a harsh laugh and said, If wishes were horses, beggars might ride. Still, I thank you for your goodwill. Goodbye. About thirty yards from her house there was an elbow in the drove. When I reached it, I looked back and saw that she was still standing in her doorway, with her figure sharply silhouetted against the red glow of the kitchen fire. For one instant the play of shadow made it look as if there were another, taller figure behind her, but the illusion passed directly. I waved my hand to her and turned the corner. It was a fine, still, starlight night. I reflected that the moon would be up before I reached home, and my walk would not be unpleasant. I had naturally been rather puzzled by Mrs. Vrie's behaviour, and decided that I must see her again before long, to ascertain whether, as seemed possible, her mind were giving way. When I had passed the other cottages of the group, I noticed that the stars were disappearing, and a thick white mist was rolling up. This did not trouble me. The drove now ran straight until it joined the high road, and there was no turn into it on either side. I had therefore no chance of losing my way, and anyone who lives in the fens is accustomed to fogs. It soon grew very thick, and I was conscious of the slightly creepy feeling which a thick fog very commonly inspires. I had been thinking of a variety of things in a somewhat desultory fashion, when suddenly almost as if it had been whispered into my ear, a passage from the Book of Wisdom came into my mind and refused to be dislodged. My nerves were good then, and I had often walked up a lonely drove in a fog before, but still, just at that moment, I should have preferred to have recalled almost anything else, for this was the extract with which my memory was pleased to present me. For neither did the dark recesses that held them guard them from fears. But sounds rushing down rang around them. The phantoms appeared, cheerless with unsmiling faces, and no force of fire prevailed to give them light. Neither were the brightest flames of the stars strong enough to illume the gloomy night. And in terror, they deemed the things which they saw to be worse than the sight on which they could not gaze. And they lay helpless, made the sport of magic art. Suddenly I heard a loud snort, as of a beast, apparently at my elbow. Naturally I jumped and stood still for a moment to avoid blundering into a stray cow, but there was nothing there. The next moment I heard what sounded exactly like a low chuckle. This was more disconcerting, but common sense soon came to my aid. I told myself that the cow must have been to the other side of the hedge and not really so close as it had seemed to me. What I had taken for a chuckle must have been the squelching of her feet in a soft place. But I must confess that I did not find this explanation as convincing as I could have wished. I plodded on, but soon began to feel unaccountably tired. I say unaccountably because I was a good walker and often covered much more ground than I had done that day. I slackened my pace, but as I was not out of breath, that did not relieve me. 
I felt as if I were wading through water up to my middle, or through very deep, soft snow, and at last was fairly compelled to stop. By this time I was thoroughly uneasy, wondering what could be the matter with me. But, as I still had nearly two miles to go, there was nothing to do but to push on as best I might. When I started again, I saw that the fog seemed to be beginning to clear, though I could not feel a breath of air. But instead of thinning in the ordinary way, it merely rolled back a little on either hand, producing an effect which I had never seen before. Along the sides of the drove lay two solid banks of white, with a narrow passage clear between them. This passage seemed to stretch for an interminable distance, and at the far end I perceived a number of figures. I say advisedly perceived rather than saw, for I do not know whether I saw them in the ordinary sense of the word or not. That is to say, I did not know then, and have never been able to determine since, whether it was still dark. I only know that my power of vision seemed to be independent of light or darkness. I perceived the figures, as one sees the creatures of a dream, or the mental pictures which sometimes come when one is neither quite asleep nor awake. They were advancing, rapidly, in orderly fashion, almost like a body of troops. The scene recalled very vividly a picture of the Israelites marching across the Red Sea between two perpendicular walls of water in a set of Bible pictures which I'd had as a child. I suppose that I had not thought of that picture for more than 30 years, but now it leapt into my mind, and I found myself saying aloud, Yes, of course, it must have been exactly like that. How glad I am to have seen it. I suppose it was the interest of making the comparison that kept me from feeling the surprise which would otherwise have been occasioned by meeting a large number of people marching down a lonely drove after dark on a raw December evening. At first I should have said there were thirty or forty in the party, but when they had drawn a little nearer they seemed to be not more than ten or dozen strong. A moment later I saw to my surprise that they were reduced to five or six. The advancing figures seemed to be melting into one another, something after the fashion of dissolving views. Their speed and stature increased as their numbers diminished, suggesting that the survivors had, in some horrible fashion, absorbed the personality of their companions. Now there appeared to be only three. Then one solitary figure of gigantic stature, rushing down the drove towards me at a fearful pace without a sound. As he came, the mist closed behind him, so that his dark figure was thrown up against a solid background of white, much as mountain climbers are said to sometimes see their own shadows upon a bank of cloud. On and on he came, until at last he towered above me, and I saw his face. It has come to me once or twice since in troubled dreams, and may come again. But I am thankful that I have never had any clear picture of it in my waking moments. If I had, I should be afraid for my reason. I know that the impression which it produced upon me was that of intense malignity, long baffled, and now at last within reach of its desire. 
I believe I screamed aloud. Then, after a pause which seemed to last for hours, he broke over me like a wave. There was a rushing and a streaming all around me, and I was struck out with my hands as if I were swimming. The sensation was not unlike that of rising from a deep dive. There was the same feeling of pressure and suffocation, but in this case coupled with the most intense physical loathing. The only comparison which I can suggest is that I felt as a man might feel if he were buried under a heap of worms or toads. Suddenly, I seemed to be clear and fell forward on my face. I'm not sure whether I fainted or not, but I must have lain there for some minutes. When I picked myself up, I felt a light breeze upon my forehead, and the mist was clearing away as quickly as it had come. I saw the rim of the moon above the horizon, and my mysterious fatigue had disappeared. I hurried forward as quickly as I could without venturing to look behind me. I only wanted to get out of that abominable drove onto the high road, where there were lights and other human beings. For I knew that what I had seen was a creature of darkness and waste places, and that among my fellows I should be safe. When I reached home, my housekeeper looked at me oddly. Of course, my clothes were muddy and disarranged, but I suspect that there was something else unusual in my appearance. I merely said that I had had a fall coming up a drove in the dark and was not feeling particularly well. I avoided the looking glass when I went to my room to change. Coming downstairs, I heard through the open kitchen door some scraps of conversation, or rather of a monologue delivered by my housekeeper, to the effect that no one ought to be about the droves after dark as much as I was, and that it was providence that things were no worse. Her own mother's uncle had, it appeared, been down just such another drove on just such another night, forty years ago, come next Christmas Eve. They brought him home on a barrow, with both his eyes drawn down, and every drop of blood in his body turned. But he would never speak of what he'd see and wildcats couldn't have scratched it out of him. An inaudible remark from one of the maids was met by a long sniff, and the statement, Girls seem to think they know everything nowadays. I spent the next day in bed, as besides the shock which I'd received, I'd caught a bad cold. When I got up on the second, I was not surprised to hear that Mrs Vries had been found dead the previous afternoon. I had hardly finished breakfast when I was told that the policeman, whose name was Winter, would be glad to see me. It appeared that on New Year's morning, a half-witted boy of 17 who lived at one of the other cottages down the drove had come to him and said that Mrs Vries was dead and that he must come and enter her house. He declined to explain how he came by the information, so at first Mr Winter contented himself with pointing out that it was the 1st of January, not of April but the boy was so insistent that finally he went. When repeated knockings at Mrs Vrees' cottage produced no result, he had felt justified in forcing the back door. She was sitting in a large wooden armchair, quite dead. She was leaning forward a little, and her hands were clasping the arms so tightly that it proved to be a matter of some difficulty to unloose her fingers. In front of her was another chair, so close that if anyone had been sitting in it, 
his knees must have touched those of the dead woman. The seat cushions were flattened down, as if it had been occupied recently by a solid personage. The tea things had not been cleared away, but the kitchen was perfectly clean and tidy. There was no suspicion of foul play, as all the doors and windows were securely fastened on the inside. Winter added that her face made him feel quite sickish-like, and that the house smelt very bad, for all that it was so clean. A post-mortem examination of the body showed that her heart was in a very bad state, and enabled the coroner's jury to return a verdict of death from natural causes. But the doctor told me privately that she must have had a shock of some kind. In fact, he said, if anyone ever died of fright, she did. But goodness knows what can have frightened her in her own kitchen, unless it was her own conscience. But that is more in your line than mine. He added that he had found the examination of the body peculiarly trying, though he could not, or would not, say why. As I was the last person who had seen her alive, I attended the inquest, but gave only formal evidence of an unimportant character. I did not mention that the second armchair had stood in the corner of the room during my visit and that I had not occupied it. The boy was of course called and asked how he knew she was dead, but nothing satisfactory could be got from him. He said that there was right houses and there was wrong houses, not to say persons, and that they had been after her for a long time. When asked who he meant by they, he declined to explain, merely adding as a general statement that he could see further into a milestone than what some people could, for all they thought themselves so clever. His own family deposed that he had been absolutely silent, contrary to his usual custom, from tea time on New Year's Eve to breakfast time next day. Then he had suddenly announced that Mrs Vries was dead and ran out of the house before they could say anything to him. Accordingly, he was dismissed with a warning to the effect that persons who were disrespectful to constituted authorities always came to a bad end. It naturally fell to me to conduct the funeral, as I could have given no reason for refusing her Christian burial. The coffin was not particularly weighty, but as it was being lowered into the grave, the ropes supporting it parted, and it fell several feet with a thud. The shock dislodged a quantity of soil from the sides of the cavity so that the coffin was completely covered before I had time to say, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Afterwards, the sexton spoke to me apologetically about the occurrence. I'm fair put about, sir, about them ropes, he said. Nothing of that sort ever happened before in my time. They was pretty nigh new, too, and I thought they'd have done us for years. But just look here, sir. Here he showed me two extraordinarily ravelled ends. I never see a rope park like that afore. Looks almost as if it had been scratted through by a big cat or something. That night I was taken ill. When I was better, my doctor said that rest and change of scene were imperative. I knew that I could never go down a drove alone by night again, so tendered my resignation to my bishop. I hope that I still have a few years of usefulness before me, 
but I know that I can never be as if I had not seen what I have seen. Whether I met with my adventure through any fault of my own I cannot tell, but of one thing I am sure, there are powers of darkness which walk abroad in waste places, and that man is happy who has never had to face them. If anyone who reads this should ever have a similar experience and should feel tempted to try to investigate it further, I commend him to the counsel of Jesus Ben Sira. My son, seek not things that are too hard for thee, and search not out things that are above thy strength.